So welcome back for another episode of the Under Pressure Outdoors podcast. This week's episode is titled Bagging Bass, and I'm joined by my buddy Mike, who's an avid kayak angler. We're going to talk about some tips and tricks, what to look for in new areas, how to find fish, how to read the water, and hopefully it'll make you a better angler. Mike, how are you doing tonight? Doing good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So tell us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, let's see. Like so I guess everybody starts off young, and then as well as I did, um, started off with one rod, one reel, you know, a bag of worms, and went out and tried to catch some bass. And then uh, as time went by, and I wanted to get off the bank, you know, I wanted to get to better spots, so I went out and uh, bought a kayak. Uh, with one of my buddies and I uh, started kayak fishing and then as uh, more time went on I decided that I wanted to see what my skills tested up to other people so I joined some tournaments and then joined more tournaments and and basically that's where, that's where we are today. So how often do you fish tournaments? Uh, I might do two a month. Okay so that's not too, that's not too bad that's pretty it's fairly often. Yeah. Do you ever do you ever win anything? <laughs> so not yet. I came in uh, second place once and third place twice, and that's out of probably 30 to 40 tournaments. So what are these What are these first place prizes? Well, it time? all depends on the, the amount of people that show up. I mean, you have your KBF, which is the, the big kayak bass, or the kayak bass fishing tournaments. They uh, I mean anywhere from 300 to 400 people. So your payouts are, you know, it could be $100,000 in those. But the, the ones that I fish, I mean, you might – most I've seen it show up for one of mine is probably 40 people, and the payouts are about 1000 for first place. That's still not bad. Not bad at all. You know, you're one of the only fishermen I know who can't swim. <laughs> you had to bring that up, didn't you? Yeah, you <laughs> knew I was going to. I just uh, – I've never learned. I never was taught. I, I mean, I can doggy paddle, but I can't tread water. So I always wear a life jacket while I'm on my kayak, always. Safety first, right? Yeah. So let's go ahead and dive right in right on into this. What are some things you look for when you're when you're fishing a new area? That's a very uh broad question there. So um of course of course it all depends on the time of year. Um, you know, your bass go through their their regular life cycle or their, their yearly cycle, you like to call it, you know, your spawn, your pre-spawn, your post-spawn, and you know, their summer patterns, winter patterns, whatever. So every area is gonna be different. But so say I'm just say it's just a normal summer day, right? So we're, we're in summer now. It's a normal summer day. And, um, of course, before I go fish a body of water, I get on Google Maps. I get on um, Navionics and stuff. So I want to look at depths. I want to look, you know, where's this? Where's that? Where's the points at? Where's the main lake grass at? Stuff like that. So I know where to go. So I'm not wasting a bunch of time while I'm on the water. All right, um, hold up. I'm going to stop you right there. What are those apps and tools you're using to get this information? Okay, so I use Google Maps. And then Navionics, which will show you the depths and uh, different different stuff under the water. Um, it's just it's a very useful tool to see where the deep water is at, to the shallow water is at, where the drop offs are at, and stuff like that. I also use Fishbrain, and Fishbrain is the app that will um, basically people can post their catches to where they've caught it at. So if you're going to a new body of water and you want to get an idea where other people are catching fish at, you can get on Fishbrain. Look at the spot that you're going to, and then you can see what people's caught in that area. All right, proceed. <laughs> so just on a uh, so after looking at those apps and getting an idea of where I want to go, um, obviously you know you get on the water and you're you're looking 
you're looking for these spots. You know, I, I have a, uh, I have a, a fish finder on mine. Um, so it has the maps on it and stuff like that. So I can kind of plot points of where I wanted to go, you know, the night before or whatever. And, uh, but basically a summer day, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for in the early morning, I'm looking for grass lines, uh, grass flats, you know, warm or shallow water. Cause you know, the, the, the bass come up to feed in the morning and then they go back out to the deep or they get underneath these grass mats during the afternoon. So then we push to the afternoon. I'm looking for maybe, um, some more main lake grass or some lily pads or some uh, deep brush or, you know, you're going, you want to move out a little deeper because those fish are going to move out. You know, the water warms up, the water's cooler, deeper. That's where they're going to want to go. Um, and then as the afternoon goes, you just repeat your morning, morning pattern. You know, you're going to throw your top water and you're going to come back to those grass flats or, uh, you know, something similar to that. So what is your go-to bait? in these new areas let's see i always have a buzz bait tied on my top water bait will always be a buzz bait i've caught my personal best on a buzz bait i've caught multiple big bass on a buzz bait um that's the war eagle all black buzz bait that's the best buzz bait i've ever used and i've the only one i will ever use um and i'm that's the first thing i'm using and then of course as it gets warmer because we got to break this into periods of the day um I like to flip. I like to flip draws. I like to flip uh, structure bugs, the KVD or the Strike King structure bug. Um, any really any kind of plastic, maybe a jig. I love to flip those and you know into those grass places or on those on the wood structure and stuff like that. And then as the evening comes back up, go back to a buzz bait. So you're just kind of working the same pattern till midday then you start working it backwards yes pretty much i mean as the water heats all the way back up and then you reach you know a certain point where it doesn't get any hotter for that day and it goes back down you're kind of just working in reverse so what are you doing in the winter time uh staying home and watching football <laughs> <laughs> i don't like i don't like fishing in the cold man i did it one time and it didn't turn out very well i'm not very good at it. it's definitely one of my weak spots um so i just stay home there's no point in me going out there so you don't have any tips for cold weather? I do not, unfortunately. Man. I mean, I can give you what I've heard is they like to go deep and fish really slow. But I've never really – I don't go out there and try it on my own. I seem to always, no matter what time of year, can find to have some sort of luck with a jerkbait. Uh, throwing a jerkbait in the wintertime, working it really slow, really slow. Uh, usually like a, a – a suspending jerk bait, not one that's going to float back to the top. Something I can work down to four to six feet and then twitch and let it, and it'll stay there. It'll sit where it's at. Yeah. Uh, that and fishing jigs really, really, really slow across the bottom. Well, I mean, the jerk bait, it works because it's a, um, the shad start dying off. The bait fish start dying off when it gets cold or the water gets too cold, they start dying off. So what you're mimicking is a, uh, a dying bait fish, which is going to attract a bass. It's an easy meal. They don't have to use as much energy. So they want those easy meals. They're not going to really chase your crank baits. They're not going to, you know, chase your spinner baits and your chatter baits. They're going to want something that's really easy where they don't have to exert that much force or that much, um, not force, but, uh, energy. So how do you, how do you pick the colors of the baits you use? Um, water clarity, water clarity plays a big part in that. Um, the cleaner the water is, the more natural colors you want to use your watermelon, your, your pumpkin seed, 
um, your shad patterns for your crankbaits and, you know, your whites um, for your spinnerbaits and your chatterbaits, stuff like that. And then as the water gets dirtier, you're going to want to go to either a brighter color or a really dark color, your June bugs, your black and blues, your stuff like that. Um, now, I have a, a certain preference for like, so I only throw black and blue. Unless it's crankbaits, then I'll throw a very bright chartreuse color. Because I feel like black and blue is so much more productive in getting more bites than in maybe a uh, watermelon worm with a chartreuse curly tail on it. For instance, it's just an example. I've always had more bites on black and blue plastics and jigs and stuff like that. Gotcha. And that can make a big difference in, in your catch for the day, throwing the right colors. Because if you're not looking like what the fish are eating, then you're going to get less hits that way. Yes. Less, less bites out of hunger, more bites out of reaction. Um. But a lot of those times when you're, when you have hungry fish, your reaction strikes aren't going to be near as often as if you were actually getting fish to eat because, or getting fish to bite because they want to eat. Yeah. I mean, for, for example of that, um, just this last weekend, you know, I was, I was pre-fishing this lake that I have a tournament for this Saturday and, um, the water was, was, it was dingy. It wasn't dirty and it wasn't clean. You know what I'm saying? It's in the middle. So, uh, my, one of my buddies was throwing a, a watermelon brush hog. And he was, you know, he was getting a couple bites here and there. So me, as I, and I just said, I only throw black and blue. I decided to throw a watermelon brush hog because, you know, he was getting bites off of it. I wanted to see if I could get bites off of it as well. Let's just say in about two hours, I probably only got two bites. And then I went back to my color, my black and blue, and ended up catching a, I think a two and a half pounder. And then 10 minutes later, caught a, almost a four pounder for the biggest one of the day that we caught that day. And it just kind of, you know, it just kind of proves that, you know, I guess color matters in, in a certain stance, I guess. Color matters. I mean, it depends on what they can see. You know, sometimes you have to drop it on top of their head. You know, sometimes they can actually see that bait moving in the water and they'll, you know, go after it. And maybe that watermelon they weren't seeing as well. So how, how far do you think you paddle during an average, on average, during a tournament? Well, so I did, I a kayak. Um and at first, because I really didn't, I didn't move, move too much. Like we would drop in at a ramp and everybody would take off and I'd be the kind of guy I'd be like, I'm gonna hit the first cove that I see. And um, then as I started learning that maybe that's not the best um, decision. I would go, you know, I start paddling a little farther and farther away, but there towards the end of my paddle kayak time, I uh, was probably paddling four miles. Every time I went and fished, that's pretty decent. And then, of course, uh, I got tired of it, so I went and got a pedal kayak. So, what's the what's the difference in the two? So, your your paddle kayak, obviously, you're paddling, and uh, but the wind, the wind blows you around a lot more in a paddle kayak. It's and you're trying to make casts in certain spots, and the wind's blowing, and you're constantly having to adjust yourself, you know, and put your rod down, paddle back to where you were, you know, fish again. It takes a lot longer to get to the spots that you want to get to definitely when it matters, you know, before you're trying to beat somebody else out to that spot. Um, and it's just tiring after a while. I mean, with the winds blowing against you, it's it's rough. You know, you're trying to paddle against the wind and you're not really going anywhere. So it takes double the amount of time. 
And if you think during a, a tournament time, you know, you're starting at six and you're ending at two and you're, you're two and a half miles out because you found this spot that has, you know, big, you know, uh, lots of grass lines or a lot of uh, brush and stuff. And you're, you got to cut your fishing time short because you got to paddle all the way back and get back at two. You know, and these other guys, they might have, you know, 30, 45 minutes more to fish because they have pedal kayaks. And then with the pedal one, after the switch over, you can, you can focus a lot more on fishing those spots because you don't have to mess around too much. You, you know, you're using your feet instead of your hands. So you're casting a lot more and you can just use your feet to get you into, you know, your position that you want. You save time. You're, it seems, they seem a lot more comfortable, I guess, because you don't have a paddle constantly in your way or on your lap. So you can, you can cast around a lot more. Um, that, that's probably the big differences that I've noticed between the two. Okay. So let's talk about being a more productive angler. In your opinion, I know this is really just opinion based. What bait should every productive angler have in their tackle box? You're talking about productive, you don't talk about more like a, a beginner, like a person just going out fishing for fun. Well, what bait, let's, let's say this. If you could only go and fish a tournament with one bait out of your tackle box, what would it be? It would be a Strike King Black and Blue Rage Bug. Which is like a creature bait, soft plastic? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a creature bait, yeah. So, let's see, I like to throw one of the baits I've always had at least limited success with is a, a blue and silver rattle trap. The, 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 the Bill Dance version? No, I'm talking about the Rat L Trap. Version. Oh, okay, okay. The blue and silver Rat L Trap or the green Cinco worm with the red flake in it. Yeah, I was going to say Cinco. Uh, that was going to be my next answer. For like, If you want to catch consistent fish, a Cinco will always produce fish for you. That's that's one of those things I have to say. When nothing else is working, uh, I'll always switch over to that, and we'll eventually catch a fish on it. Yeah, that, that's, that's that's a lot of down. people's bait to go to. A lot of people throw the Senko. It's a very very productive bait. Well, yeah, I mean, you Texas rig it, weightless rig it, wacky rig it. They got the Nico rig out. You could do it with. It's a very uh, dive or versatile bait. So what has helped you improve most as an angler? Practice. Practice. Get out there, get on the water, and start learning. That, I mean, you can watch as many YouTube videos as you want. You can read as many articles as you want, try and get ideas for things, but you're not really going to know how fish react or where to fish at unless you get out there. You know, you have to throw those different kind of baits. You have to see what they're biting on. You have to you use different styles and different methods of these. Of, you know, different baits, you know, the way you can use a spinner bait multiple ways or, you know, a rattle trap, you can use multiple ways. You got to get out there and, and practice all stuff and learn it. And that will help you be a more successful angler. And that's in my opinion. I mean, we spent an entire summer fishing together. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. It's probably every, some of the best fishing time I ever had. It was, it was a lot of fun every single day fishing from the bank. Uh, and then some days where we could randomly get a little, a little John boat and paddle around. Uh, but we, we had a good time fishing one lake for the most part. Yeah, really, uh, for a while there was just that one spot, that natural bridge. 
Oh, man. You know, let's talk about that for a minute because that was a very underrated spot and, and that whole lake because – and we, we consistently pulled good fish out of there. Oh, yeah. But you couldn't do it all day. We could normally only pull maybe three or four good fish out of there and then we would have to move on to another spot in the lake. But the place we were fishing – do you remember the name of that lake? I do not. I don't remember the name of the camp that we were at. Camp Natural Bridge. Oh, how ironic, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't remember the name of the lake, but I do remember that spot, though, I'll tell you. So the camp got its name from the creek that flowed into the – it was a very, very long but fairly narrow lake in a mountain valley in New York. Um, and the creek flowed into one end of the lake and then went underground – creating a natural land bridge and then came back up on the other side in the form of like a spring. And outside of that spring, the water was maybe a foot or two deep right there. And it didn't seem to, you couldn't go out there and look and and see it hold a lot of fish, but we would get up on this big boulder and pitch jigs and stuff back down into that hole where the water came back out. And we were consistently pulling good fish out of there. I think it was a Strike King Pro Model jig in black and blue. Yeah. It had little rattles on it. That and the Biffle Bug. The Biffle Bug, man. I, uh, I, have, I haven't had that bait be as productive anywhere else as it was there. Neither have I. Neither have I. I still have a whole Plano box full of all the colors that we bought up there because they were working so well. I do, too. Because I can't get anything else to bite them. I, I do. If I, try. I could go back, if I could go back and throw biffle bugs for a week and nothing else on that lake, I would do it. I've tried, man. Because I mean, it's it's basically a creature bait. So you would think that you know, like the Strike King Rage Bug or the uh, the Guggen Bandito Bug. I mean, those are other creature baits. You would think that a biffle bug would still work in the same areas. But I will throw that on, and I don't get any bites. Nothing, not even a nibble. And we, we hit a point there at that place where you would, you'd fish and then you would catch a fish. It would break your line. Then you would tie on another biffle bug, throw it back out in the same spot, hook a fish again, pull it up, and it would have your biffle bug in its mouth. <laughs> I, let's see. So there, there was that time. Um, when we had went to, I think it was Academy or Dick's or whatever, and we had purchased some stuff. That's after I uh, broke my rod and reel. But um, I remember we, that's when I first bought braid. That's when you talked me in. You're like, you need to get braid because I was using uh, monofilament at the time because I was still a pretty new angler. Um, I remember I'd put braid on and we were fishing. We walked down there. We always knew that those bass were positioned facing towards the natural bridge and that little, that little stream that ran into that lake. And uh, I remember throwing in there, hooking one, breaking my line, and then retied back on, threw back in there, broke my line again. And that's when I, I ripped all that braid off. I was like, I don't like this braid. It keeps breaking my line. Never did that with monofilament. Put monofilament back on. I think we caught a couple more out of there, you know. I think it was actually the next day. The next day we went back down there. I threw back in with the same colored biffle bug. I think it was Christmas tree because it was a – watermelon with red and green flake in it and threw it back in hooked a bass caught him pulled him up and in his mouth were the two strands 
from my broken braided line the day before. And I just gave a little tug, and both those biffle bags came out. That bass hit on that same car biffle bug three times in basically a 24-hour period. And that wasn't uncommon for us to do that. We would we would fish somewhere else in the lake and hook a fish for the first time, bring it in, and it would have a biffle bug in its mouth from somebody else, uh, be it Benning or somebody else who was fishing with the biffle bug, would catch one. And then we would go back and catch it again after it broke his line. Yep. To get that biffle bug back. We, we kind of let that secret out. We were proud about it, the biffle bug working down there. So we kind of told everybody, and then everybody went out and bought biffle bugs. We had our own little tournaments going there between the two of us for a while. Actually, we had several people in it, but they kind of quit after the first tournament. Yeah, it was uh, well, first one. Was the first one at 20 pounds? I think so. 30 pounds? It was something like that. I remember because every fish that we caught, we would weigh and it would count towards, you know, and whoever reached that, that mark first won. Yeah, I believe it was the the first tournament we did was to thirty pounds, but we only you only were allowed to keep fish in your tally that were two pounds or heavier. Yes, I think it was. Yeah, uh, I don't think we reached that in like a week. Yeah, we reached that pretty quick, and then I think the next one we did whoever had the most at the end of the month. Yeah, whoever had the highest weight at the end of the month because we kept running through those pound tournaments quick. Yes, because we were about to leave. It was like whoever had the most when we left. I think that last day we went out there, it was the silver biffle bug. Remember that thing? Yes. And we were fishing out, not the natural bridge, we were fishing out by the obstacle course, I think it was, that little patio that was there. Yep. And I was throwing off to the side, trying to get away out there because there was a grass flat out there. And I was basically, I wasn't even popping the, the biffle bug. I was, I was like trying to move it through the water like a bait fish. And I caught those last two, I think two pounders right at the end. And that yeah, put me. You screwed me out of that one. Because uh, <laughs> I was holding that lead with a solid, I want to say at one point I had like a solid eight pounds on you for a week or so. Um, and then in the last day, you, you beat me out by like a, pound and a half or something like that and i lost a big fish that afternoon um and it broke my heart but that's some big fish down there though too so say again said you also caught some big fish down there as well i did i caught the biggest fish i caught down there i caught because i rats nested my pole yeah that was your uh that was your little tactic right there i knew it every time you rat nested i knew it i knew there was a big chance that there was gonna be a, a three plus pounder on that line <laughs> I was catching I caught some big fish on a popper throwing a topwater popper and I still really love throwing throwing a topwater popper I think of all the ways to fish topwater is my absolute favorite way to fish just because you get to see so much action yeah, I, I, I love topwater. if I could throw topwater all day every day I think within like everybody else I, I would do it um and that's kind of what's drawn me towards fly fishing. I've started to get back into try to get back into fly fishing again, and I picked up a, a eight weight fly rod to fish saltwater with. And man, it is a challenge. It is not like riding a bicycle. Just because you used to be able to fly fish doesn't mean you still can. Um, especially if, like I did, you know, I had that little fly rod when we were in New York, um, but it was a very I want to say it was a four weight very light fly rod and throwing small tiny nymph flies for trout and stuff like that and i was catching bluegill and 
um, things of that nature on there. In fact, I think I caught a pike on a white popper fly. Wow. Um, there. I never heard of fly fishing. It's a lot of fun. It's a, it's very methodical. Um, but throwing a, a light fly rod like that with tiny flies is a whole different ball game from picking up that heavy nine foot, eight weight fly rod, throwing big saltwater flies, big streamer flies and things like that for redfish and sea trout. And then you get into, uh, I've got some freshwater flies that look like frogs and crickets and some poppers for top water and stuff like that. And I have yet to catch a bass on a fly rod. Which is weird because they hit top water all the time. So you would think if you go out there, you know, in the early morning or evenings, you would catch a couple. Well, I don't fish as much as I would like to. And then when I do get to fish, uh, I think I spend more time baiting hooks than I do actually fishing myself anymore. Because I like should to try the uh, try the rat nest technique. Rat nest technique. It worked for you before. I've tried it, but when you have a little four-year-old that loves to fish just as much as you do, he, my son, is all about going fishing. And uh, he's, you, you would think that you're fishing with Bill Dance <laughs> when you're fishing with that child because I'll put him in my little 12-foot John boat and we'll go out. We used to do it a lot when we lived in Georgia. We would go out and uh, run the river near us and fish. And we park in a good shady spot. I'm like, all right, bud, hey, cast your bobber over there with the worm on it next to those lily pads underneath that shade tree. There's going to be, should be some bluegill sitting up underneath there in the shade. There's no fish over there, dad. They're over here. I'm like, all right, well, you do what you want. I guess that's where we're going. <laughs> and, and he catches fish. And I'm like, dude, I, he's a natural, I guess. That's all I can figure hey, out. He, he outfishes me on a regular basis. That is your son, man. So you know he was going to be good at fishing. Uh, he's he's hooked into some small, largemouth bass, and he's caught some pretty serious catfish. And he just has a blast. He's a saltwater angler now that we're back in Florida. He's caught a few saltwater fish. Just cat. He he could he could cast a fishing pole before he could walk. What was so, the uh, what was the biggest bass pulled out of uh, that lake up there at West Point? I think I can't remember. I wanted to say the state record was only like twelve or thirteen pounds. No, I'm talking about for for our guys. While we were up there, one of the guys pulled out a big old bass out of that that lake. I think it was the, the maybe the medic uh, platoon sergeant. Eight pounds, nine pounds. I remember he put it in the freezer because he was trying to take it home. Yeah, it's a pretty good bass. And the thing I noticed, I don't know if you've noticed it now that you're fishing down here in the south, and this is something I was talking to you about when we fished in New York and in Kentucky when we were together up there, is that the fish down here versus the fish up there, the bass we were catching up there were very long fish, but they were yes. very skinny. Yes, they were. But the bass down here seemed to be short and fat. Yeah, because we were catching some up there, and it was like, oh, that's a, that's a five-pounder all day. And then you'd wait, and it'd be like high threes, and you're like – it's a it's a three pound twenty two inch long fish. Yeah, exactly. They were a lot longer. I don't wonder if it's a different strain. Maybe that's up there. I don't know, but that was what I you know that's exactly what I was talking about when I'm saying I'm picking these fish up out of the water. I'm saying this fish has got to weigh this much, and I'm looking yeah. at the length and stuff like that. We throw it on the scale, and it weighs less. I'm just used to looking at that shorter, fatter bass that I'm used to catching down here. And I caught a uh, 
Speaking of that, I caught a uh, six pound, two ouncer about a month ago, I think it was. And uh, of course, you know, in kayak tournaments, we we measure our fish. We don't keep them live because we can't. There's no, we, we'd have to get a live well on our kayak and stuff. And that's just extra money. So what we do is we take a measuring board and we measure it. And then we take our top five in that. And then we submit those pictures, right? But uh, so I caught that six pounder. And I, of course, I measured him because I had my measuring board on me. And uh, he was only 21 inches. And I'm sitting there really? thinking, like, I've caught bass that are three pounds. Like we were saying that, you know, it's 22 inches long. Like, how is this? They're, they're so short. They're shorter and a lot fatter here. So they weigh a lot more. They just don't look. They're not as long. It's wild. You know, I think that may really have to do with climate. Because it does not yeah. get nearly as cold down the south as it does in New York. Very true. You may have a lot of that. So climate. They're growing, but they're not eating as much. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. It was just well, a, it I, was think that, I think that the fish down here in the south have a, lar- a longer period of the year at which they can readily find something to eat. Therefore, yeah. they get fatter. Where your fish up there probably do are, are a lot fatter at some point in the year, later in the summer, maybe early in the fall, they're pretty fat. The time of year we were in, we were in the early spring or late spring or mid spring into early summer. Yeah. We, we got there right after spawn in, in New York. So I remember seeing all the beds when we first arrived. Yeah. And then by the time our fishing poles got there and the connexes, it was already past spawn. It was, you know, you were, we were in, um, we were in post spawn at that point in time. I think what we're looking at there is, is fish that are, um, spawned out. Maybe I didn't, I didn't even think of that at the time. Maybe they were spawned out. That's why they were so much skinnier. Could be. So you're telling me that we, if we would have caught them during the spawn, we would end up catching, we would have caught multiple five and six pounders instead of three and four pounders. Probably. It kind of upsets me now. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about it now, it kind of upsets me. <laughs> we would have pulled, we would have pulled some, we pulled some good fish out of there regardless. And we pulled a lot of little fish and we also pulled, you know, fish of all sizes. I mean, shoot, I caught a nine inch fish on a 10 inch worm. You did the uh, African special. Yes. Yeah. Oh my the, God. I forgot about the that. Zoom African special. It when looked like pulled, they took a they took a black worm and then filled it full of every color of glitter they could sweep up off the floor. When you pulled that out, I was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> I have never seen that color before. It worked. It, it did work. It. I mean, you, like you said, you got a nine-inch bass to eat a ten-inch worm, and he wanted it. That's. But that was definitely an interesting place to fish. Um, so what is your favorite structure to fish? I know mine is definitely lily pads. I've got a lot of lily pads down here. And I think the thing that I find most fun about lily pads is that, I well, one, I really like fishing topwater. Lily pads is a great place to do that. Yeah. So, But I, one thing I like about lily pads is I'll throw some of the strangest looking baits. I've caught bass on mouse baits. I've caught bass on duck baits that look like baby ducks. I've caught bass on frogs. I've caught bass on bluegill-looking baits, throwing across lily pads. You name it, top water that's weedless, you can throw across lily pads. I've caught bass on it in lily pads. And they just absolutely destroy whatever's coming across the top of lily pads like that. So I haven't had much as much luck on lily pads. I'll get, a, I'll get some here and there. 
but my favorite cover, especially being here, you know, in, uh, in Columbus, Georgia, um, a lot of places around here, they have a lot of grass. There is a lot of grass here. And, you know, up at in Kentucky, you know, we had more of the, uh, the wood structure, you know, you would throw, you know, in the brush and, you know, the logs and stuff in the water. So I can't really like put a favorite on it. Like what, what would I prefer to fish? Um, grass is nice. Grass is easier to fish, I think, but I would also like throwing a jig, you know, against some, some wood and stuff and then catching some bass off that as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd probably go with grass. I'd probably go with grass. If I had to choose something, it'd be grass because I'm, I'm getting better at it and I'm able to pull a decent sized fish out of it. So how have you adapted to fishing topwater bait around alligators? <laughs> so for, for the for the most part, they leave us alone. And I'm in a kayak. You know, I'm only in a 12-foot kayak. And I've seen some 13 and 14-foot alligators out here, some of these these lakes. Um, at first, it made me a little nervous. But um, they leave you alone. I mean, once they, they see that you're there, they'll go under, and then you, you, you won't see them again for the rest of the day. Um, the little ones are the ones I – I've had a little problem with, especially if they're I don't see them and they're hiding in the grass that I'm throwing. Yep. Um, they love to chase, of course, the topwater frogs and the you know <laughs> the ribbits and the buzzbaits. They'll chase them, and uh, but I haven't had any alligator come up more than five feet away from my kayak and you know try to bother me or try to you know do anything. So it hasn't that, been too bad. It, it was definitely new from all the places I fished before. This is the first place I've ever been to that has alligators in it. So it was definitely a little creepy at first. And see, for me, I grew up around that stuff growing up in Florida. I've always had alligators. If there's a body of water in the state of Florida to include swimming pools, there's an alligator in there. Uh, so <clears throat> when I talked about fishing around alligators, I wasn't talking about the 12 and 13 footers because you're right. The bigger ones just leave you alone. They don't care about that little stuff. I'm yeah. talking about the ones that are about four, three, about three to five feet. Yeah. Those are the ones that will harass you when you don't see them. And they don't, they don't do it to harass you, but you're trying to throw a topwater bait across on the edge of some grass or <clears throat> across lily pads, something like that, and they will chase it, and you can never get them to go away. They'll no, come they up just, to the boat, and they'll go under, and then they'll go right back to the grass. And you try and yeah. throw them again, and here they chase it again. Those little ones, do, they do stay around. The big ones, like you said, you know, they see you, they're, they're gone. They're you know, like, I'm not worried about it. I think it's just the, the sound of the topwater going across the top, and they just – they love to chase it. I mean, I've, I've had some some funny experiences with alligators, not only fishing, but like duck hunting. Uh, I've seen alligators uh, steal dead ducks. I've seen alligators try and take decoys. Um, and we have a place down here, public land called Emerilda Marsh, which is very close to where I'm at. And I am not in the least bit scared to swim with alligators, but you wouldn't see me step foot in that water. No way. It's kind of funny you say, so we were, we were out in the water um, probably a couple weeks ago and this other kayaker come up. I always fish with, you know, a kayaker probably in part that I can't swim, even though I do wear a life jacket. I just feel safer having somebody with me. Um, but uh, with this other kayaker came up and he was like, Hey, I just want to let you guys know, there's an alligator in open water over there. And we're like, okay, man, you know, cause we, by that point in time, I, I've seen enough to be like, not worried about it. And uh, he was like, and then he went 
and then he submerged, so don't fall out of your kayak. And for the rest of the day, we were just like, what was that guy talking about? Like, why was he, why did he warn us about this alligator? So, of course, now it's a joke. You know, we see an alligator and we're like, oh, he's not submerged. It's okay to go ahead and fall out. If you want to fall out now, now is the safe time. But if he goes <laughs> under, you might want to get back in your kayak. <laughs> so, uh, that, when you said that, it just kind of brought that to my mind. It was like, wow. We, uh, we had a spot we duck hunted in Georgia that this was before I had a pair of waders and only one of the three guys that we fished with, there were three of us or there were three of us and only one of us had a pair of waders. So he was constantly in the water, retrieving ducks, moving the boat around for everybody. Cause he didn't have a duck dog and he's from North Carolina. He's terrified of alligators. And now mind you, it's, it's like 28 degrees. It's pretty dang cold. And uh, he's walking around pulling the boat through some flooded timber. He says, "Man, I don't like doing this. I, because I don't, I don't want to get bit by an alligator. I don't want to step on an alligator and get bit." And I was like, "Ah, you're fine. There's no alligators out here, and this, there's not as many alligators here as there are in Florida. And I haven't seen that many in the summertime running around." So we go about our day. We collect our ducks. We get back. We go back to the house. Well, I come back to that same lake in the summertime just to look at it because in the wintertime the river was over its banks by 13 feet and that's why we had flooded timber i mean we parked our trucks where we where we took the boat off the trailer and put it in the water and we were 700 yards from the water in that lake when i walked out to the edge of the lake where we were driving the boat the bright eyes the little reflectors that i put on the trees to find my way to and from the boat ramp where we put our boats in in the dark were about five feet over my head. And I'm six foot one. So it was it was deep in there. And we get out to the edge of the lake and my buddy he says, Man, he said that's a he said that's a huge alligator. And I was like, What? So I leaned around the tree and there is easily an alligator that was he was easily twelve to thirteen feet long. And there were probably twenty five other alligators in that tiny little lake. <laughs> yeah, and I found it so funny because I was convincing this guy, that's ah, all right. There's no alligators out here, man. And that lake was absolutely <laughs> loaded down with alligators, and there was a dang dinosaur out there. Needless to say, he didn't get back in the water anymore. Oh man, I, I really don't blame him. Especially me, I'm coming from Indiana, and like this is the first time I've been around alligators as well. I'd be like, no, nope, I'm good. I'm good, man. <laughs> I'm gonna stay in the truck. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know if you need anything. <laughs> so, uh, so back to fishing. We're talking about reading the water. So, how do you fish different structures and cover? What like what baits do you throw? Retrieve speed, etc. All right. Um, so let me, let me just start this off by saying I am horrible in deeper water. If it's if it's deeper than 15 feet like you'll watch flw and and all these other different you know pro fishing shows and stuff like that and they're like in the summer they go out to ledges and 30 feet of water they're going out to deep brush you know in, in 25 30 feet of water and they're pulling these bass out of these out of them you know with their electronics so they can see all the stuff with and everything like that um so i'm horrible with deep water so i i stick to 15 and under for the most part um so Let's see. With so we'll start with the top water. We'll start with the morning. Um, 
So grass, obviously, I like to throw um, your buzz baits, your your ribbit frogs is a good one. Stuff that can actually get through the grass. You don't want to throw like your poppers and your whopper ploppers and and stuff like that near grass unless it's like you're really accurate in casting where you're not going to hit the, the the grass or the weed lines or whatever. Um, a good caster, just not great. So I don't want to sit there and be messing with a whopper plopper, pulling it out of grass, you know, half the time that I'm casting and making cast. So like I said, buzz bait, ribbit frogs, maybe a topwater frog, um, things like that. So you don't get caught up in the grass. Now, if you move over to like a wood structure or, um, you know, you get logs in the water, uh, that's when I'll throw on my uh, whopper ploppers or your things with treble hooks on it close to that wood that way it's not going to get caught in the wood but it's just going to run right next to it because you know the bass use that for cover and they're going to come up on it um then as you move throughout the day um for grass you know i like to pitch into the grass maybe run a chatterbait or spinnerbait next to the grass um and you're varying your speeds because you're, you're trying to figure out what speed you need to use for these bass to be attracted to or what they're actually going to bite onto you know, you just don't want to sit there, you know, retrieve it, you know, the same speed the whole entire time. And you're like, I'm not getting any bites. Let me tie on something else. You got you to gotta divvy it up. You know, you got to, you know, start off with the medium speed or a faster speed and then, you know, slow it down. Maybe get a couple of jerks in there. Maybe get that reaction strike as it's coming through a spot or a known spot that you're like, man, a bat, this looks good. A bass should be there. Let me just rip this through it real quick and give it a little jerk maybe that pause in the action will actually get the bass to, to strike it and i've done that multiple times with my top waters i've done that multiple times with of uh coming through you have a little grass patch on one side another grass patch on the other side you're bringing uh buzz bait through it and right as you're about to come through that grass patch you, you give it a little jerk and it makes that little bit louder commotion and i've had multiple fish come up and eat that based on that on that method um and then if you're Fishing wood in the middle of the day or, you know, as it gets warmer, um, your jigs, you know, you can still use your plastics, maybe use some crankbaits to knock it off that wood. Um, same thing, you know, just switch up your retrieve and how you do it. Give it a couple of jerks, let it pop, let it go up, let it, you know, let it sink down if it sinks down. Um, and actually hit the cover, you know, make sure you're actually hitting the wood and the structure. That way it's causing that reaction strike as well. And then, like we talked about before, you just basically, as it gets to the hottest part of the day and you start going back towards evening, just reverse your cycle based on what color you're fishing. So, let's take a quick break real quick. But before we do that, I want to talk to you guys about our partner, Sportsman Shield. Sportsman Shield makes a durable outdoor decal for your trail camera and your tree stand that makes them believe that there's a GPS tracking device inside. It works on the same principle as putting up a posted sign. It's there to let people know this isn't yours and you shouldn't be touching it. Um, and for the price point, they're, they're more than worth that extra level of protection, protection for your investment. And right now, not only are they 50% off, but... If you go on their website and you use offer code UP Outdoors, capital U, capital P, capital O, and Outdoors 20 at checkout, you'll get 20% off of your next order. So get on their website, check them out, order you guys some decals, 
and hunt more, worry less, Sportsman Shield. So what weather patterns do you find to be most productive? Um, so definitely cloudy. I, I say cloudy more over sunny because uh, when the sun gets up and it gets hot, the bass like to you know tuck away in those grass beds and and pull close to that cover. It's a little harder to catch them. They're not as active. They want to get in that cool water. They're just like any other you know living thing. They they want to stay cooler. So I mean, with cloudy out, your top water lasts a lot longer because the sun's the sun's not like it's not the water's not heating up. So they're they're wanting to bite top water a lot longer. Um, and they, they seem to be easier to catch. They don't, they don't go as tight to that cover anymore. You know, you can still use your, your moving baits for a lot longer than you would, you know, on a sunny day. So for someone like me that you would call an essential worker who is still having to go to work through all this five days a week. And I got a family to that I spend time with and stuff like that. I'm not fortunate enough to still collect a nice fat paycheck from Uncle Sam uh, while I'm sitting in my kayak Monday through Friday, like <clears throat> some people. <laughs> uh, what are how do I make the best of those less desirable weather patterns when I do have time to fish? Um. See, those are the times that I actually take to uh, practice, like practice techniques and stuff. Um, so on your, on your hotter days, you know, if you're going out there in the afternoon, that's the only time that you can actually get out in the water, you know, not your prime top water times. Um, you want to get it, you can try to go deep if, if you can and, uh, find some structure, you know, in the deeper in the water, throw to that. That's, that's more likely where they're going to go. You know, the bass don't move very far. So if they're feeding in one place in the shallows in the morning, then they're probably just going to go to the deep water. It's on, you know, right next to it for the afternoon. You know, they could drop off from, you know, being a five feet of water to drop to down to 15, to 20 feet of water. Um, if you can get to, you know, grass mats and, and grass, grass lines and stuff on the lake, um, you're going to want to be able to pitch into those, you know, not just on the front of it, but maybe back into it. If it's not that thick, you can get back into it, you know, put on your, your punching weights and, you're punching hooks and go ahead and just start punching into that grass line because they're going to tuck up underneath there because of shade. And then obviously your favorite thing, lily pads. They will go underneath lily pads for shade as well. So you can still catch them on a, a topwater frog throughout the day. And then if you get some plastics down in between, you know, the the lily pads themselves, so you, you can still pull some bass out. But it's definitely a harder time period to fish than it would be, you know, on a, on a cloudy day or on a – your evening and your morning bites. So what are punching weights and punching hooks? It's just he heavy weights. So if you're using a normal Texas rig, you're going to use, you know, in between one eighth and maybe an ounce, maybe an ounce. I mean, that might be a little heavy for some people. I think I, I think I have used them a couple times, but I usually use a one eighth or a uh, three sixteenths. I believe it is just a, a lighter weight. The controls, the fall rate of the bait makes it fall, uh, faster or slower for your your punching weight you're looking at you know one and a half ounces two ounces maybe heavier for some people depending on how thick the mats are uh, and actually it just allows it to get down in into that cover be able to punch that that top surface cover and get down underneath there where those bass like to hide and then you're you're punching you know your hooks um they're just a, they're built a little stronger they're a little thicker they're made to be able to pull fish out of that cover because you 
you're not just going to bring the fish out with it. You're going to bring the whole salad bar with it. You know, you're, you're bringing whatever is down there with it, and you want something that's uh, durable and not going to, you know, bend out your hook as you're bringing that fish in. And also pegging. You wanna, probably want to peg your weight. You don't want that weight to slide up and down because that's – then it's, you know, it's sitting on top of one lily pad. Your bait's sitting on top of another. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. So if you peg it, then it's which is just a little – thing that goes on your line that stops the weight from moving like in a texas rig your weight would move up and down your line but if you peg it it keeps that weight close to the bait so when you do throw it in there it punches straight down and doesn't slide up it see that's something i've, I've never done before and that's a that's an issue i've i've, I've encountered trying to fish in lily pads throwing a big worm or something like that is that you will get the worm on a lily pad and the weight doesn't land on the lily pad. Now you've got a weight that's hanging six inches beneath the lily pad and the worm sitting on top of it. And it does you yeah. no good. And that's why they made this whole the whole setup for that. So you could actually get it down in there. So try and describe some of these different ways to rig worms. And I and I say this to say I say that to say this. I'm gonna get on our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook and I will find some graphics. Uh, and when we publish the podcast, which it should go live today, is the 9th. Tomorrow's the 10th. It'll go live the evening of the 12th, Sunday evening. And before that, I'll put up some graphics so you guys can get on there and actually look at what we're talking about. I'll see if I can find some stuff about uh, bait colors and water versus water clarity versus what the, the fish should be feeding on. Um, I know I used to have those charts in my phone. I probably don't have them anymore. It's been so long since I had them. Um, but I'm sure I can find them again, and I'll post those to our page. And if you guys have been following our page this week, I just gave you the told you where the 12 and a half pound bass is hiding at, and in the local lake here. Guess I'm taking a trip you, down to Florida. Yeah, you you think I'm crazy for doing that? But that was public information. Yeah. Uh, the FWC. Um, they put bait trees around a lot of lakes throughout the state of Florida, and they were doing some studies on those bait trees uh, or fish attractors, as they call them, here recently. And they have repeatedly pulled this same 12, 12 and a half pound bass off of these bait trees in Lake Dora. So you can take the information I gave you. You'll know if you catch that bass because it has a radio tracker in it. I don't know if you looked at the picture that I posted. If you guys noticed, there was a, a wire hanging out of the belly of the bass. There's a there's a radio tracker in that bass. So you know if you caught that bass. Um, but the location of those bait trees are, are right there for anybody to see. And that's a good place to start. Especially if you're coming down here and you've never fished that lake before. That's structure where you know it's at. You know the depth of it. You know the size of it. Because that's all listed on that site. So, see if you can describe to me how to rig these these different rigs. We talked about Texas rig and wacky rig, and so on and so forth. I mean, that's that's the ones I mostly use. Um, you have the Nico rig, which is I think it's a newer. I want to say it's a newer rig, but I'm not for sure about that. But it's basically it's a it's almost like a wacky rig, but you take a nail weight and you put it in the head of your Senko or your stick worm, and when it when it floats down, it floats down by that weight. So it's still wacky rigged, but it floats down by that weight, and it will stand almost straight up on the bottom with the hook in the middle of it. And I've, I found that very productive for um, 
spotted bass up at Lake Lanier. I had a tournament up there and I caught all my fish on the Nico rig. Um, of course, then you have the Carolina rig. I don't know much about the Carolina rig. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, it, it works great or, you know, this is, they've caught some great fish on it. I have never personally used it. I know it has to do with a rattle and a weight and a bunch of other stuff going on there. I don't really so, know. So I can't really explain it. I'll say this about a Carolina rig. Two, two ways I've had success fishing, I guess, maybe a modified Carolina rig. Um, whereas it would be a weight at the bottom of your line with a hook further up from the weight. Right. We're talking about the same thing or am I thinking of a different style rig? You're thinking of a drop shot. Drop shot rig. Okay, so continue. <laughs> so then you then you have the drop shot rig, which is like you said, is the weight at the bottom. Then you have a, a smaller hook. It's almost like the same size would be of a, a wacky rig hook because they make specific wacky rig hooks. Um, be be I don't know, um, eight to twelve inches above from your weight, and then you take your little finesse worm, your little trick worm, and you hook just the nose of it. So that helps out with your when your bass are not really on the bottom, but they're you know six inches to a foot above the bottom. That puts the, that little trick worm right in front of their face, and that tail just just wiggles at them, and they just can't resist it. And you do catch so, a lot of smaller fish on it, but you I mean you have a pretty good chance of catching a, a decent fish on it as well. The ways I've had success running that rig would be either a in a spot where I know I've got current fishing uh, right on the edge of a spring or in a river or I can cast it out and I will literally just tight line it and let it sit with a ribbon tail worm and let the current do the work. Um, or B, if I have a, if I know about how tall my grass is on the bottom, I'll run that worm to where it sits just above the top of the grass. And then I can throw that rig out and bounce that worm right on top of the grass without ever going down into the grass. And I've had quite a quite a bit of success with that. Yeah, it's definitely not something you want to throw into a cover, like wooded cover, and like that. That hook's exposed. It's not like a Texas rig. The the hook is not inside the bait. Um, it will get caught up. Same thing with a Nico rig or a wacky rig. That hook is exposed. So you don't want to throw that into uh, cover at all because you're going to lose a lot of hooks and a lot of baits. And I've actually seen some new uh, jig heads that have come out that would kind of. Mimic that Nico rig, but allow you to throw it weedless, where the jig head is uh, flat. You're thinking of the Ned rig, I think. Yeah, where yeah. It, was, yeah, it stands up on its end on the bottom. Yeah, that's that'd be a Ned rig. The, the Nico rig just has that little nail weight in the head. You have to push that nail weight inside the head. The hook is still like a wacky rig. It's still hooked in the middle of the the worm. But then you're talking about the the Nico or not the Nico, the Ned rig has like that little jig head with has a brush guard on it. And then you just use like, uh, I know Z-Man is uh, big on them. Those little, it's like half a Senko. You put those on there and that's really good for like small mouth or really finicky fish. Like you're having a hard time catching fish. That is considered like a finesse bait. So I'll say this about nail weights. They're called nail weights for a reason. They look like the end of a nail. And when you're really tight on that budget, nail weights in price wise to other weights are generally a little more expensive because they're kind of a specialty weight. But mm -hmm. you could literally go to Home Depot 
buy a pack of ring shank nails and a set of dykes and cut the ends off the ring shank nails and make different size nail weights because that's that's really what nail weights are ring shank nails and i have done that and it's a lot cheaper i can get a i can get a whole quarter pound box or like a big box of ring 10 bucks versus a small pack of nail weights for five dollars yeah, they they work just the same. It would it works exactly the same. So let's yeah. let's. I wanted I wanted to talk a little bit about like a beginning like fish like a, a beginning fisherman going out like kind of what he needs and stuff like that. Is it okay if I do that? No, go for it. Okay, so um, say you want to get into bass fishing, and you don't know kind of what rod and reel to get because of so many selections or you don't know what baits to pick up or like what your essential should be just for a little, little bag. You know, you don't want anything crazy. You just, you, you fish for fun and you just want to be able to catch fish. Um, I would definitely recommend what's worked best for me coming up through, you know, the different kind of poles and reels and brands and stuff, everything that I've used is, um, I mean, really the brands on you, but, uh, I use a seven foot medium action or medium, heavy, medium action rod. Um, I prefer a bait caster because of, you actually because of you <laughs> i say i know i know uh i know a mike that did not prefer a bait caster yeah. now when i was growing up my it was my 12th birthday my dad said happy birthday here's a bait caster i said how do i use it he said hold your thumb down on the line go cast at that five gallon bucket and it was trial by fire and i still haven't got it down perfect like perfected it to this day because i don't use the traditional bait caster you you like a bait caster that you use yeah i i fish abu garcia six i have a abu garcia 6600 and i like that that bait caster because it holds like 400 yards of line it's a very very big bait casting reel but i don't have all the fancy brakes and all that stuff on there i have the traditional break that came on a bait caster when they first started out but i like that one because i don't only fish with it in freshwater i fish with it in salt water yeah freshwater having that much line is not really necessary but in salt water that can become very necessary very fast you also remember the uh the mic that uh had a spinning rod on a bait casting no i had a spinning reel on a bait casting rod yes i do yeah yeah the, there was a time when I fished a, a spinning reel and a bait casting rod because I tripped and broke my spinning reel or broke my spinning rod and my bait caster, my bait casting reel had took a dump on me. So for about two weeks, I fished a spinning reel on a bait casting rod. But you got to do what you got to do to catch fish. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, you can, a, a Zebco catches fish just as good as a, as, as a top dollar bait caster does. Yeah, true. I mean, it just kind of depends on what the price you're paying and how long it's going to last. Like, how right. well made is the the product? Right. Go ahead. So, uh, yeah, seven foot, medium heavy, medium action rod, and then I prefer a bait caster. Um, you you don't want to go with the higher the gear ratio, the faster you're pulling in the line per reel. And then the lower the gear ratio, the slower you're pulling it. So you want to go with like a medium. So like a six, six to one would be perfect for basically everything. And then once you start getting, you know, more advanced like that, you want to get different reels and different speeds, but just six, six to one bait casting would be perfectly fine. 
or you know a spinning reel of your choice you know and with the same gear ratio um for your line uh, i would definitely recommend fluorocarbon uh it's more abrasive resistant a monofilament has a stretch to it so when you're trying to set the hook that line's going to stretch especially with top bars it comes kind of kind of crucial um i would use a fluorocarbon or a braid and then the, of course the, the brand that i like is um and I don't remember. <laughs> Floor or uh, P like P line fluorocarbon, or I think it's P line. I'll get back to you on that. Um, but definitely, uh, your poundage would be probably between I would say twelve and seventeen pounds for your fluorocarbon. You really don't need anything heavier than that. And then your braid, you would want to go between like thirty and forty pounds. Um, and so then, I mean, some of the, the tackle and stuff you would need, some basic tackle. I uh, definitely get a top water, get something that you could throw into weeds and grass lines. That way, uh, you sound very versatile. Um, go with the plastic, either go with a big worm or go with a, some kind of creature bait. And then, based on those colors that we were talking about earlier, you want to go with something bright or something dark. Um, then you want to get a moving bait. You want to get a spinner bait, a chatter bait, a lipless crank bait, a square bill, something for more shallower water because you're probably going to be fishing from a bank or a boat and you wouldn't, you would fish back towards the bank. Um, so you fish more of shallower water. Um, same colors for those. You want to go with a white or a uh, white and chartreuse, or sometimes you can go like, with your crank bait stuff as a shad pattern because you're going to follow the bait fish that those bass are eating. Um, and then your normal hooks, you know, you can get a four-aught, which is the size of hook, um, EWG, which is extra wide gap hook for those. And then you can go with a, a light um, weight, which would be, you know, your 1A, so your 316, something like that. I, I use tungsten because it just has a, has a better – you can kind of feel it a little better as it's going through the water. And, um yeah, I mean, that, that would probably be the basic stuff that, you know, if you wanted to go by and go fishing right now, that that would be the basic stuff that you would need and you would catch fish. So I would say, I'll say this, you, what you talked about, you said a four-aught hook. When you're looking at hooks on the shelf, a four-aught hook is going to say four slash zero on the package. Yes. Those are your different hook sizes. And a four-aught hook is a fairly large hook. And don't think that a large hook can't catch a small fish because – when I caught that nine inch bass on that 10 inch worm, I was throwing a four out hook. So, and that hook was almost as big as his mouth was. Bass are very, can be very aggressive and they're going to hit things that are big. Swallow that whole bait, you know? Yeah. So don't okay. think that your hook size is going to keep you from catching fish. The, the type of line was a cigar red label fluorocarbon. That's what I use. I use 15 pounds. Okay. And another advantage to braided line over monofilament, because you're talking about you're running 15 pound fluorocarbon and you're running a 30 pound yeah. braid. Well, the braided line is a lot thinner than that fluorocarbon. So you can stack a heavier braid just as you can stack just as much line in a heavier braid as you can on a, on a reel as you can a lighter monofilament. So everything I run, I run a 30 pound braid, which allows me to, I can 
pull logs up off the bottom with that heavy braid without breaking a line and especially throwing into cover and a lot of fishing a lot of lily pads if you hook into a lily pad stock good that joker is gonna is gonna put up a fight it doesn't want to come out it does not want to come out (laughs) no it does not um but another thing i do when i fish braided line is i do fish a leader I fish a monofilament leader. Do you do that, or you just fish straight to the braid? No, I, I fish straight to – I mean, I, I back it. I'll back it with uh, monofilament. What that means is is before you actually uh, put your braid on, you want to put your monofilament or fluorocarbon on, fluorocarbon on and then you want to um, – I can't remember the name of the knot, but there's a certain knot that you want to tie between your fluorocarbon and your braid. And the reason you want to back it is because braid likes to bite in on itself, and you don't want it biting in on itself, so you want it to bite in on that monofilament or braid. Or what you could do is put – electrical tape there instead of the monofilament or fluorocarbon and then you bite in but I, no i don't use a leader uh so i run um 30 pound or 20 25 to 30 pound leader as well and that becomes pretty crucial down here when you're fishing super clear water mm-hmm. and i'll run four to five feet of that leader on the end of my line um because I, I've got places down here where I can see the bottom at 20 feet deep. So I can't just run that crankbait right to the braid because the fish can see the braid. Yeah, exactly. So in a dark, in a dirtier water, which I do have a lot of that here too, uh, you can get away without running that leader. But definitely in the clear water, you want to be running that leader. And, you know, you can find the knots to tie that leader to your line right there on that braided line box. Oh, you can. You're right. I totally forgot. So they're all there. They're not that hard. Um, I can't remember the name of the knot either that I used to tie leader to, to braid, but there's a specific knot for doing that. And it allows me to reel the leader up in my line, in my, into the eyes of the pole and still cast it back out. Yeah. It's line. a really small, tight knot. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't bother you at all. Um, so go ahead. What was they going to say? So I, I use braid more for like, uh, my top water and for my flipping and pitching. For my crankbaits, I always run fluorocarbon. That's just because for the so they can with the visible aspect of it, you know what I'm saying? I don't want the fish to see it. Usually when you're throwing top water, the more of the action of the top water kind of attracts the fish and you don't have to really worry about it. And plus where you're throwing top water into your lily pads and your grass and stuff like that, you want to be able to pull that fish out of there. So that's why I use braid for that. And of course the same thing for flipping and, and pitching and stuff. Um, but I run fluorocarbon for all my moving baits. And see I run braid on all my poles because I don't just primarily fish fresh water i go out with those same poles into salt water where i'm not no longer looking at uh a big fish is a 10 pound bass i'm looking at a big fish is a 22 inch redfish who is going to absolutely strip line and strip line and strip line before it finally gives up and comes into the boat and i need to be able to have that strength to pull out of mangrove structure and got to keep him off of oyster beds and because redfish are going to slam their heads into rocks and stuff to break your hooks i mean redfish are so much fun to catch because they are so difficult to keep on the line i'm gonna come come Uh, down there and fish for some redfish with you man that i've got some spots and i will put you on some honey holes i've never done that before it's it's a lot of fun. You come down here and I'll put you on some fish and we'll have a good time. All right, time. how's tomorrow, Sam? 
uh, I got to work on Saturday. <laughs> I don't have to work. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> skip the tournament. Come down. I'll put you on. Oh, I can't game. skip the tournament, man. It's my first one since uh, March, I believe. Whew, you get a little rusty. Yeah, I mean, not saying the fact that I don't fish like three times a week. Yeah, so we originally tried to record this episode, what, a month ago? Yeah. And I couldn't get you to record it because you were fishing. I, I fish a lot, man. Like I said, like I said earlier, practice. You got to practice. You got to get out there. You got to try things out. Like uh, you spend, you spend about as much time on the water as I spend in the woods. Yes, that, that'd be facts. So just like hunting is definitely my my biggest passion, um, and I fish outside of hunting season. Uh, but I still absolutely love to fish, and I really truly. Over freshwater fishing, I, I much more enjoy saltwater fishing. Well, that's bigger fish. Um, well, it's not only bigger fish. The the fish are a lot more aggressive, and a lot of saltwater is sight fishing uh, if you're in the right Okay, spot. okay. So we're moving in some of the spots I've got. Um, we have one we call the G-spot where we're running a mud boat that you can literally run through soupy mud a surface drive mud boat and we all have to get out of the boat and then push the boat over about two inches of water into a back cove. And then we can get back into the boat and fish and back in there. You can get some awesome snook, some awesome big redfish, but everything back there is a foot, two feet deep. So we're looking at fish standing on the bow of the boat, looking out, looking at fish and throwing a bait three, four inches in front of a fish and trying to get them to bite. We're not blind casting going, there might be a fish there. When you're, when we're fishing for those redfish, we're going, there is a fish right yeah. there. Get your bait right in front of it. It's screen. a lot better than me. And it's, you got me pitching in grass, you know, I'll pitch in the grass, you know, 30, 40 times before I might get a bite, you know? Uh, I think sight fishing, you spend a lot of time standing on the front of the boat going, where's that fish at? <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you know, I'll stand there. I won't just stand there and, and look for fish. I'll stand there and pitch to where fish should be. Oh, yeah. And I've caught I've caught plenty of redfish doing that. Plenty of sea trout, redfish. I have yet to catch a snook. But uh, when you come down here, we got you got to stay at least two days that way one day we can get up early in the morning we can go out we do some sight fishing throughout the morning and throughout the day and then the next evening we need to go out and we'll hit some dock lights at night uh with live bait okay because you you can get up in those docks we went out and we fished dock lights one night and there was there was a spot where there were easily 20 25 redfish up under a dock light behind somebody's house because they're eating shrimp. They're eating bait fish. They're all high up in that dock light eating bugs and whatever else falls in the water. We're going to have to make it three days because you forget I'm, I'm a bass fisherman. So we have to go bass fishing at one point in time. It's Florida. I mean, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Got to put enough. me on some of those. You got to put me on that 12 pounder. Yeah, I can try. We can hit all those bait trees and see what we can come yeah, out I'm with. Spend a whole day out there. So we're coming to the end of this and every, at the end of every podcast, we like to do it under pressure outdoors tip of the week. Do you have a tip for everybody or you want me to go first? 
Um, you go first. All right. So what I'm going to say is you multiple times throughout this episode, you harped on practice and a big thing that is, that was pushed on me as a kid and as a young angler was casting accurately into comes into play when you're sight fishing, being able to put that bait right out in front of the deal. But you've got a, you've got a five inch gun at 500. Now you're two inches off on your wind call and you just missed seven inches to one side of that target because nobody's perfect at calling wind. So the smaller you can get that group in a controlled environment, the better off you're going to be when you've got to make a fast wind call. You just climbed up a mountain. You've got to make a fast wind call. Get on, get on target and break that shot. And if you are off by two inches on your wind call, which if you had a three inch gun, you're still making an ethical kill. But if you've got a five inch gun, now you're getting into the range of a gut shotting or a miss altogether. And so that's where it doesn't, does two inches matter? It depends. Two inches doesn't matter one iota um, when you're shooting at a piece of steel that's not moving. And if you miss, it's not a big deal. You just adjust and shoot again. But when you can make, you want to have the most accurate firearm that you can produce so that when there is human error in the field because you're excited, you've been on a long hike, and it's the bull of a lifetime, um, you want your rifle to help compensate for your shit wind call. And I'll say this. Two inches doesn't matter when you're talking about two inches between a heart and a lung. But two inches makes a huge difference when you're talking about two inches between a heart or between a lung and a liver. Well, we're not talking about the difference between a five-inch group and a three-inch group. We're talking about the difference between a five-inch group and a seven-inch group. Right. That's what we're talking about. And so, yeah, well, you think, well, five inches, that's fine. But it really isn't because then you make a shit wind call uh, or you don't account for spin drift or something weird happens and now instead of being in your five inch i mean you can go out and shoot all day five inches at 500 yards but that deer takes one step forward or a half a step forward now your five inches is seven nine inches and and that's where we get into some issues with ethical ethical kills and shots on target because you don't know i think we talked about it last week that uh, you just don't know what that animal is going to do from the time you pull a trigger until that bullet gets there and a lot Uh, can happen if you're accounting for spin drift in your shot on a big game animal that is not ethical and you should not be taking that shot it happens (laughs) i know people do it I've seen the videos. That does not mean I agree with it. Well, spin. I, I, I don't wouldn't. I wouldn't do it either. I just bring it up to say that a spin drift doesn't matter to 800 yards. Um, 
and then you add one inch to your to your data at that point. Uh, once you hit 800 yards, you just add an inch of was it an inch of drop. So uh, yeah, you just you just add an inch after 800 yards, but that 800 yards is a long shot, and you better be winning uh, precision rifle competitions all over the world to be able to handle that shot on some sort of game animal. Um, spin drift is is the if you imagine your bullet hanging in midair like a pendulum, and the Earth, although your bullet is flying, continues to spin beneath it. No, that's Coriolis. Coriolis. Spin drift. So if you spin a top like a kid's toy on the table and you touch one side of that top with your finger, it's going to move up and away from you. So the same thing happens to a bullet. You think of it as a top spinning in the air and it has gravity and air is reacting on all sides of it. And so it's like touching a top on one side and basically what that is doing is it's going to push the bullet up and to the left um if you so if you zero that rifle at say 100 yards or 200 yards then spin drift is consistent it's a, a tenet of physics and so it's always consistent it happens the same every time it doesn't matter until you get into ranges well beyond what you've shot before and confirmed your zero. And so, uh, and, and really it doesn't matter till you get out past about 800 yards. And, and that's when you start seeing that kind of, um, it's an upward and counter to the rifling twist direction uh, of, of drift of the round as it flies through the air due to the uh, physical contact of the air in which it's passing. Check out. Yep. All right. <laughs> Mistake on my part. So yeah, Coriolis, if you're, if you're figuring Coriolis and you're taking a shot at game, I'd say go home uh, and read another book because, uh, <laughs> Coriolis, I don't think, starts to matter until you start getting in out past a thousand. Yeah. Um, spin drift will affect the shot, you know, 600 yards, but it's not going to be so bad that that uh, you're going to have to really account for it. Now, it's good to know because, like I said, you want that thing to be as accurate as you can. And if you can account for that real fast, we're talking an eighth of a minute hold or something like that. Um, if you say, well, that thing's at, I'm at 600 yards right now. And so if you can just think, okay, well, I need to hold an, an eight low right of where all of my math came out at. Um, that just gets you that much closer so that you can account for any other variations that you don't have control over. So I'll say this. There are some times where I would take those ex- very, very extended shots. Um, but I'm not going to take it on a large game animal. If I had the opportunity to go out and shoot some prairie dogs, uh, you best believe if I'm presented with a shot at a thousand or beyond, then that I'm going to try. Uh, I'm going to try on an animal that 
pretty much no matter where I hit it, the shot's going to prove fatal with the round that I'm using. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Uh, prairie dogs or or uh, those other big-ass gophers you guys got out there. Use guys, we don't have those down here. <laughs> yeah, use guys the got them big-ass gophers. Yeah, groundhogs. Those those things, I mean, if you're shooting a 6.5 at a groundhog, yeah, go ahead and, and sling that shot out there a 1,000 yards or something because it doesn't – if you hit it, it's going to pretty much vaporize the animal or, you know, it, it's dead. So uh, that kind of stuff. But on larger game, yeah, uh, I mean, shit, you could shoot them with a uh, 338 Lapua at 200 yards, and if you get them wrong, they ain't going to die. They're, you know, they've got hindquarters and legs and guts and everything too far from their heart. But, yeah, prairie dogs and groundhogs. Yeah, their heart's too close to the rest of their body. And, you know, a, a cool thing to watch if you want to watch some very extended, and I mean very extended shots on some small game. Um, you get on YouTube, and I don't know if you ever watched Dartmouth and the Neighbor, the YouTube channel. No. Those guys uh, shoot coyotes, the coyote hunters, and they are regularly taking shots uh, at a thousand and beyond. Uh, but they are also hunting coyotes at 2,000 yards with a 338 Lapua. So you're back into the same realm of is that an ethical shot to take with a 6.5 at, at 6.5 Creedmoor at 1,500 yards? N- no. You, you shouldn't try that. But with a 338 Lapua or a 50 BMG, which they've also used, that is, you're in the same prairie dog realm at that point. Yeah, that it's just going to be so terminal on target. It's not going to matter where you hit it. It's going to die. Just the, the cavity expansion and all that as the bull passes through, whether you hit them in the guts or not, they're going to get such a uh, – so much cavity expansion is going to disrupt all of the organs anyway, and they're going to they're gonna die. So, yeah. Right. It's instantaneous just about no matter where you hit them. Yeah, if you're if you're curious, watch some of those uh, ballistic gel testing and stuff like that, and then or you can read about them. You have to watch the test, but uh, you can read about them and see what the uh, you know the cavity expansion and stuff is through the ballistics gel, and it gives you a good idea about how many inches that that's going to be uh, fatal if you you know if you so a lot of them will, will say well cavity expansion is is fatal if you hit you know uh, whatever four inches from a major organ. Um, and that's just when that bullet goes in there, it's dragging so much other atmospherics behind it. Yeah. You get this real big initial expansion. Um, and the pressure in there is enough to liquefy a lot of major organs. So, um, those are good things to read. If you're curious, like, should I, should I shoot a coyote with my 22250 at, uh, 10,000 yards, um, just read some of those uh, ballistics reports and stuff and, and just see how they react through uh, human-style tissue. And it'll give you a pretty good idea of what, whether that's a good idea or not. So, before we dive into this last bit of this this uh, episode and we go ahead and wrap things up, let's take one more break and we'll be right back to you. All right. All right, so we're back to the last half of this episode. 
So let's talk about how to test loads for accuracy. All right, so there's a lot of different things that you can you can play with when you're reloading. You can change your, your powder. You can play with bullets. Uh, you can play with primers. Um, so what what you're dealing with is you'll be able to fit your ammunition to your rifle. So um, if if uh, Remington or, or Savage, if they if they're turning out you know a few hundred rifles uh, every day. Uh, those first, say, they the first 50 are going to come off with really tight chambers. Uh, the middle 50 are going to come off, or middle 100 are going to come off with their uh, kind of middle chambers. And then the last the last part of them that come off in the day are going to have, have different chamber dimensions as well. So these things are probably going to keep getting, chambers are going to keep getting tighter as the tooling gets smaller. Um, so even though they're it's the same rifle and they were made on the same assembly line by the same machining with the same tooling, you're going to have different tolerances in those chambers and they're all going to be different. So one way that you can, you can tailor your ammunition to fit that rifle as it came off the assembly line uh, same thing's going to happen with the barrel, with the rifling in the barrel. Uh, all that stuff's going to change, too, as tooling wears. They can't put brand-new tooling on for every single one, or you'd be paying $5,000 for a rifle like you do a custom, because that's what your custom rifle builder is going to do. Um, so you're going to have, if you bought two sequential serial-numbered firearms from the same manufacturer, they're going to show slightly different tolerances across the entire rifle due to wear and tooling. Um, which means that those rifles are going to perform differently downrange. When you are reloading, um, you might buy a box of, so you might buy a box of ammunition over the shelf and they've, they've shot this through a proof barrel and they've tested it and they give you a certain feet per second. Well, if you have a oversized chamber and an undersized bore, you're not going to get that same velocity. Uh, what you want to look for is you want to be able to reload your cartridge for your rifle that's going to shoot the same every single time. Uh, the same stuff happens with ammunition manufacturers. They get out of tolerance or they get, they have tolerance changes as they go through the day because they're doing this on a massive scale when you're reloading a massive scale is for a hunter maybe what 100 rounds a year you're not burning through tooling um so what you'll be able to do is find the best velocity slash case slash powder slash bullet combination for that rifle um, if you have two rifles that are chambered for the same cartridge you want to label those cartridges and only shoot them out of that rifle um, and and keep different data so the big thing here with reloading is keep data if you're a spreadsheet guy knock yourself out uh, keep spreadsheets on all that stuff uh, the old pen and pad method works keep track of all that 
you can when you're just starting on load development by powder by the pound by primers by the hundred and you know cases and lots of 50 um buy good brass start there uh peterson has got great brass for a great price and uh it's 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 what i use and it's probably the best thing i've seen out there um so I, I use Peterson brass on everything that they make brass for, and it's it's beautiful, it's shiny, and and uh, it, it's long shooting. You can load it quite a few times as long as you're not doing a full length. Um, you can load it quite a few times, and so get buy good brass right out the gate. That's going to be your number one expense on these because uh, the brass costs more than everything else combined. Um, but you also get to shoot the brass more than everything else combined. So, uh, buy good brass and keep that brass with whichever firearm it's loaded for. And I don't mean chamber, I mean serial numbered firearm specific. Um, and so when you begin developing load, uh, you're going to start off, uh, go, go to the Google machine and just read about it. Find a powder that is consistently mentioned on different forums and reloading things don't listen to people's data on reloading forums um make sure you're going to some sort of a reputable site that is associated with sammy for loading data but you can definitely pull personal experience with powder choice off i find that for a lot of the uh Oh, those, you know, large action calibers, 30 out six and 270 and, and the seven, I don't think seven Magnum, but, but those, those large common, um, white tail and lower type of cartridges, uh, H4350 works well in all of those. Um, so it's a really good place to start. Um, if you have it, you want to chrono everything so you can pull your max deviation. But if you don't have a chrono, then the best way to figure out whether that's going to work is you do what's called a ladder, a ladder load. So you decide basically when you start looking and you're looking for a hunting bullet, find the one that has the highest ballistic coefficient and, uh, and just go ahead and start with that Buy in as small of a quantity as you can. Buy powder in as small of a quantity as you can. Uh, Primer, same thing. And cases, the same thing. Because what you're working on right now is you don't want to go spend $1,000 buying components for a load that may or may not shoot well. So you buy everything in very small batches during load development. But what you want to do is you're going to go through your reloading manual or look at the reloading data on the manufacturer's website. And uh, they'll have different velocities and max loads of different powders. And they'll have a range, a bottom range and a top range. Um, So I'm going to go to, I've got a book here. We're going to look at the 6.5 by 55 millimeter Swedish Mauser, which if you can find one of these, buy it they don't get a whole lot better than how them swedes made them rifles 
But so we're looking at uh, six five by fifty five shooting a. That one, 140 grain ELBX bullet. Uh, we got H4350 here. It's got a starting load, 2300 feet per second at 37.2 grains, and a maximum load at 2500 feet per second at 41 grains. So, what you're going to do is you load five rounds each, and you're going to load one at 37.2, then you load maybe five more at 37.7 go up 0.5 grains, 0.5 grains, load five every uh, half of a grain weight between the minimum and the maximum uh, powder chart on, on the, in the data. Um, and so sometimes, depending on the powder you use, you'll end up with a range that'll go from you know, 37 to 44. Sometimes you get a range, like I just said, that's pretty small, like 36 to 40. Um, at, in those times, you might be able, might want to load up every, you know, three-tenths of a grain. Um, so you got more coverage in there. And then, and then it's range day. So you separate those, you label them. Um, I just use, like, Ziploc bags, and I'll put those five rounds and put a index card in there with the load on that. Um, I, I grab all those up and go out the range, and I'll do very slow fire so we're not really changing the barrel heat um, and I'll usually give it about 20 minutes between five shot groups so that allows the barrel to cool back off so that we're starting over um, and then if you shoot out of those five shots maybe one a minute or something like that um, and then you're just going to record those groups what I'll do is shoot paper um, and I'll go down after five shots and rip that target off and I fold it up and I put it in a Ziploc bag with the load card data. <coughs> um, and then when you start evaluating this, you'll have, so basically say you have, uh, uh, we'll say seven, seven different ladder loads um, that you took to the range with you. So you end up with seven empty plastic bags, Ziploc bags with a load index card and your target folded up stuffed in there you can go home and you can lay these out on the table and you can take your micrometer out or your wing dividers out and you can look at these and see which one is giving you the smallest five shot group and then whichever one's the smallest that's going to be your load with that powder that bullet that primer that case so um, if you're not happy with it then you start playing with primers they're cheap uh you can switch to magnum rifle and try that uh they, they just get a little more consistent burn and they burn a little faster which is going to increase your pressure a little bit um but they usually cost a little more so that's a pretty cheap way to go ahead and give it a shot you might have to cut that powder load back a tenth or two to be able to account for the primer but most of the time you have to worry about it because these when you get these books and you look at this data it's so far within the spec that you can somewhat go outside of that and i say that with a big like shoot a lot reload a lot and make, make maybe don't as your first as your first cartridge either um, but you can work your way up and shoot some pretty hot loads out of there um, you can play with primers uh, the next thing you can play with that's fairly cheap to mess around with is going to be bullets that's bullet weight bullet design 
um, bullet composition, uh, seating depth on the bullet when you seat that bullet into the casing, how far you put it in or how long the overall length of that is. Um, and then powder is going to be another way that you can play with that accuracy a little bit. Uh, powder have has different burn rates and um, you can kind of pick what you want as far as that burn rate. You can mess around with that some and, and play with that. Um, and then brass, as long as you're buying high quality brass, uh, you should be right within uh, the, the case capacity and weight of water should be fairly close from one case to the next. Then we'll talk about, we'll talk about that, you know, uh, sorting bullets and case capacity, weight of water and all that the next time. But um, there are, that's definitely a, a part three talk there. We're talking about, different shapes of powder versus burn rates versus case capacity by water displacement and uh the that jump between the lanes and grooves and the casing and how that affects accuracy um if you thought this was a long episode um yeah, so um, I mean, a lot of that we'll, we'll kind of go into that probably a lot deeper the next time we do this. But um, no, I just what I would do if you decide on a powder, find one. The Google machine's your friend. Go in there, find one that a lot of people like. Try that powder. Pick your bullet based on ballistic coefficient and terminal performance. So you want to make sure that it's going to stay together, but also create a lethal wound cavity um and then buy good brass because that is the foundation for this whole thing is that that brass is going to make a very big difference and if you decide later on down the road that hey i want to start going into the weeds on this reloading thing you've already got a stockpile of good brass you're not having to go start over because you've got uh, you know, 13 rounds of uh, federal brass and uh, 17 rounds of Norma brass and, and all this different brass because, you know, you've, you've lost a few when you're out hunting and, and uh, you just buy whatever's available. Uh, you just buy that good brass. You've got it. You've got a very firm foundation to start on reloading. Now to cut corners, go ahead, save that Hornady brass or federal brass. You can save that stuff. Keep it in lots by itself. So if you bought a box of 20, keep that box of 20 in a bag by itself. Don't mix them up with your quarterly brass. Um, but you can keep them separate, and you can reload you know, those 20 rounds, and that'll get you through a hunting season. And if you run out, then you can reload them again, or you can reload your hornadies. And then all you got to do is a quick re-zero, and then you're, you're back where you were because uh, that federal and the hornady brass, they're going to they're gonna be – fairly consistent but nothing like your norma brass or or the peterson hordy is pretty good actually so uh, i'll say this too you talk about cutting corners don't be afraid to be that guy if you're gonna reload for mass quantities for your your 223 556 9 millimeter 45 handgun to be that guy at the range that just kind of hangs out and says hey are you, you gonna keep your brass yeah, you can go chicken head all around the range. Um, 
you know, people don't care. You can go out be a range chicken. Those are the guys that you see out there and they're bobbing around grazing for brass on the range and it happens. There's there's not that many reloaders. So it's a good way to collect brass, but then what you do once you collect uh, your five gallon bucket full of brass off the range. Well, two two three, unless you're shooting long range with that, if you're gonna go just ring steel, throw it in a batch, load that shit up, go to the range. Just it doesn't matter. The nine millimeter range ammo is the same thing. You just Load it, shoot it, pick it up, load it, shoot it. Um, if you're wanting high accuracy, then you've got to go back and sort that stuff. Uh, full length, resize it, shoot it through your rifle, neck resize it, and then uh, and then after all that's done, that's when you actually take it to the range and see how it shoots for you. And, you know, and w- when you're picking up brass like that, um... If you are reloading for accuracy, you you're not sitting there <clears throat> running running rounds, running bolts as fast as you can to throw that brass across the range because uh, you don't want to get your good brass in with the poor people's brass on the on on the ground. Yeah, you don't want to mix it in with the poor. <laughs> <laughs> now you just you just uh, you know when you run that bolt and stuff, you just pull it back and recover the round right out of the chamber and drop it back in your box that you pulled it out of uh, and then and you're good to go you don't got to go uh run all around trying to find 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 your brass and then you know the guy two two uh stalls down is shooting the same brass as you are and and now it's this whole thing about whether it's yours or his or um yeah so just recover that brass especially if you're out there for accuracy like you said so uh, another question I had, and I kind of saved it for the very end of the podcast because it's not uh, necessarily in the complete realm of what we're talking about, um, but the difference in reloading for rifle and handgun versus reloading for a shotgun. Well, I had it described to me like uh, reloading for metallic cartridge, metallic cartridge reloading. Um it is akin to cooking. So, I mean, I like steaks and I like cooking. And so I go in and I throw the steak in the pan and I grab a salt shaker and I just shake it on top and I put whatever other seasonings and I, there's no measuring cups, spoons, nothing like that involved in cooking. You can just a dash of this, a dash of that, and you're good. You know, flavor to taste. That is more aligned with metallic cartridge reloading because you have you know if the recipe calls for a uh well if the recipe calls for a cci primer and all you have is remington you can just use that you just throw the remington primer as long as it's a you know a large rifle primer uh it doesn't matter if it's remington or cci they'll work it's not going to kill you shotgun reloading is more akin to baking which is a science. If you get it wrong, it's a disaster. So when you're reloading for shotgun and they call for a, um, a double A shell, you can't substitute it. You need a Winchester double A shell because those recipes are so specific. Um, the barrel, the chamber metal is not as strong. They're not made to handle as much chamber. There is no 
containment of the charge from the plastic shop shell case. So um, you don't have that going for you. And they're not, they're not rated with as much tolerance as a metallic rifle cartridge would be. Um, and so it's very, it's imperative when you reload for shotgun that if the recipe calls for a Winchester double alpha, that that's what you use. There are no substitutes allowed in, in shotgun reloading. So if they want uh, so many ounces of, uh, you know, inert material, shot size, wadding, all of that stuff, you just, no substitutes. Um, so where you're gaining your big advantage in reloading shot shells versus buying shot shells is it really when you step into uh, the game of, of waterfowl where you have to have that non-toxic shot. Yeah, if you're, or if you're in California and you just have to have it all the time. Um, where you can do things like drip. You can make your own shot out of bismuth. Uh, you, you can drip bismuth just like you could drip lead shot and make your own shot. Uh, a, an ingot of bismuth is far cheaper. Uh, a ten pound ingot, a ten pound ingot of bismuth is far cheaper than ten pounds of ing, than uh, a bismuth shot. And there are plenty of uh, videos on YouTube how to build a dripper, set it up, and, and drip the size shot you're looking for. Uh, for that non toxic shot. Other than that, um, shotgun shells are are, are pretty cheap. Unless you're you're reloading to shoot uh, buckshot. Well, you can so you can reload shot shells for about what you can buy the uh, the the federal and Winchester target rounds they sell at Walmart. It's like uh, hundred rounds for twenty bucks or something like that. So you can or twenty five, whatever it is, but you can reload shot shells for about the same price but what you're ending up with at the end of the day is going to be far superior to what that garbage is that you can buy for for that price off the shelf right and while you can reload non-toxic shot considerably cheaper than what you can buy it off the shelf you can you can but it's still worth it to reload um even if all you're going to do is shoot those, you know, if you're, if you're a big trap shooting guy, you get far more consistent. Uh, you know, the shot will pattern far more consistently and uh, just better operation of that shotgun um, by reloading for about the same price you could go buy the shit from Walmart for. So it is worth it, but it's really hard to recover that cost because when you start looking at those, you know, this is a whole new set of reloading gear you've got to get. Well, you can, you can actually get shotgun reloading equipment for fairly cheap. You, you can get a, just about a full setup of what you need difference between uh, rifle and shotgun or metal casing versus a shotgun for about 80 bucks. You can. You can, but if you're going to try and load any volume, it's uh, it's rough. But you oh need, no, you it's need a that, slow process. <laughs> yes, you need that volume to recover your front end costs. It's the same thing on on um, metallic reloading. You need that volume to recover the cost, unless 
accuracy is more important than price. But as we've said in the past, what you don't pay for in cash, you have to be willing to pay for in sweat. And if that's even trade off, then it then it's it's worth it. Yeah, and and you do you end up it is worth it um, because you do end up with far more consistent, better shooting shot shells. Same thing with metallic reloading. You end up with you you might save a few pennies here and there, and it's not a lot. But my reloads in my nine millimeter out of CZ seventy five, I shoot two hundred yard steel and just ring it over and over and over again. So, and I'm loading that for half what I could go buy a nine millimeter off the shelf full metal jacket which wouldn't do the same thing at 200 yards right so you do have that but I did have to sit here and I spend four days or whatever loading two or three thousand rounds of nine millimeter because you know I am saving half that and I'm just in here sweating in the old garage but it's far more consistent than what I could ever buy off the shelf. When you compare what I can reload to to the cheapest ammo you can buy over the shelf, it's about the same or not much cheaper. But it performs like something that would cost twice as much as the cheapest shit off the shelf. So, as always, how do we keep safety first when it comes to reloading? (laughs) Do your research. Read, read, read. Like I said, that that Google machine is your friend, and get into it. Um, nobody that re- that supplies uh, reloading components wants to see somebody fail at reloading. So they all just provide free education on re- reloading. You don't have to pay a dime. Go to their site, read on it. A lot of them got videos on how to do it. Um, you can find reloading videos on YouTube. There's podcasts out there uh, and they go a lot into reloading and you're not going to want to just go into a store, buy the cheapest of everything, mount it up and, and just, you know, fill the case up flush with the top, you know, scrape the top off with a knife and then pack a bullet down in there. Make sure that you know what you're doing. The best thing to do decide which caliber you want to reload go buy a reloading manual or start looking at all of these different powder and bullet manufacturers and reloading equipment manufacturers because I believe RCBS and uh, uh, I, I think they have loading data maybe maybe I'm wrong but Sierra Bullets um, Nosler Hornady all these places have loading data I know that RCBS has re- reloading data because I actually have a couple of their books. Well, there you go. So I don't. That's why I was wondering because I've got Sierra, Hornady, Nosler. Um, but yeah, so go to these different places. Look at the data. Pick a powder. Pick one you like. I'm, most of them are going to run about the same price per pound when you buy by one pound. Um, they're going to run between 20 and $25 a pound. Um, you pick one. Pick one, go for it. You like the way it looks, and uh, you think, well, boy, this has, you know, I can I can get away with only putting 40 grains of powder in this case, and it's going to give me the same velocity as every other powder with 44 grains. Well, that's four grains per loading that you're saving. 
which after 10 loads, you get a free one. So that would be the most economical choice. It might work like shit in your firearm, but hey, it's a good place to start because you think, well, I know nothing else about how this is going to work other than every 10 cartridges I make, I get a free one. So that's something. You go ahead and you start there. And uh, and then you just start working working your way through that. And you do those ladder loads. You load them up. Um, if you want to load, say, two different cartridges, maybe find a powder that's common between those two and use that one because now you can use the same powder for both. And so there are ways that you can kind of start off economically. And even, even if the powder is not great, there might be a better powder out there for you to use or a better primer or a better bullet. If it's, even if it's not great, it's going to perform better than 95% of factory loads that you can buy off the shelf. So you can't go wrong here. It just may not be the best thing. But do your research. Don't start with your first loading at more than what is suggested by the reloading data manuals. I do say, and I almost want to whisper it, but you can exceed the maximum load. Don't start there. Um, As you shoot, and as you approach maximum suggested load, you want to check that case for signs of excessive pressure. That'll be a bulging primer, uh, a small split above the head of the case. Um, as you just see there be, um, you'll see excessive where if you got really where you're going to see it is if that primer bulges. That's that's where the because that's going to be the weak point. The primer is far or the primer is far lighter in mass than the bullet is. So if you have excessive pressure, then it's going to push that primer back into the bolt face. So if you start approaching those danger signs on there and you're up at max load, don't go any more than that. That's where you, you want to stop and maybe find a different powder that's going to give you a faster burn rate and maybe higher velocity. Um, seating depth. That's another thing. Make sure you're seating to the recommended depths to begin with. Um, you can, you can later on start playing with your seating depth and overseed them, leave them, leave them out a little farther. Uh, you can kind of play with that stuff later, but when you're first starting to figure out where you want to sit with your powder charge, hit that seating depth just right. Um, and, and use that. Um, if you start seeing excessive pressure signs and back the powder off, a little bit and that'll give you a little bit of room there to play with your seating depth if you wanted to push that bullet out on the lands or something but most of the time if you push them out on the lands you're not going to get them in a magazine which isn't really useful for hunting and we'll cover that week yeah so we've come to the end here so we'll go to our tip of the week the under pressure outdoors tip of the week and I'll, I'll start us off um and I, I'll say I, I really have two things. Not only is the Google machine your friend, but when it comes to doing things like setting stocks, 
and other firearms modifications, YouTube can really be your friend as well. Um, but just like with what you see on the news, you should be looking for multiple sources, not just picking one and running with what they say. Uh, because for every view, there is opposing view. So watch a lot of videos, see how it's done. Always err on the side of caution. Um, because in a lot of things like uh, rifle betting, for example, you're, you're only going to get one shot. Uh, and if you screw that up, it's going to require a lot of work to fix your mistake. So take your time. Be careful. Pay attention to what you're doing. And source your information from from various places. Two, I want to talk about budgeting because we've got into a, a more expensive, you know, fourteen hundred dollars is is a is a lot of cash for me. Uh, go and, and drop on something. Um, but what I like to do is buy things, and the reason I like. <clears throat> building rifles versus buying rifles is that I can do things one piece at a time. So that allows me to spend a, spend $400 here, spend a couple hundred dollars there, so on and so forth until I, I get to the point that I'm ready to go to the range. Uh, it takes patience to do that, but you have to look at it it's not as I, I need to spend $500, but on a weekly basis, and I, I do this on a regular basis, um, I'll pull $20 out of the ATM. And I will take that $20 bill, and I will put it in a box, put it in my nightstand, and I leave it there. And I don't carry those that $20 with me. That is not for me to spend on gas or to spend on whatever beer or, or whatever I see fit because I have a $20 bill in my wallet. That is for me to save. And when I reach a point at which I can purchase a part of my rifle or purchase some reloading equipment, that's what I'm going to spend that money on. And then I'm going to start over. Set goals and incrementally save money. Um, and if you can't afford $20 a week, do 10. If you can afford more than 20, do more than 20. You're going to get there faster. You're going to get there slower, but we're all going to get there. So don't look at this $1,400 and say, oh, I can't afford that because you can. If you hide that money from yourself and you look at places you spend money, uh, like, if, if you're going to work and you're, and you're going to go eat at, at McDonald's every day for lunch, that right there, easily 10 bucks. So you could literally be saving probably, I'm going to say 30 plus dollars a week by, by packing your lunch instead of going to McDonald's every day for lunch. You can save even more than that. If you're, if you're, eating McDonald's for lunch and you're buying coffee at the gas station every morning. Make your own coffee, make your own lunch. 
now you're saving $40 a week. And that $40, you're, you're looking at $160 a month at $40 a week. That's a year. Say again? That's a year. hundred. Oh, yeah, for, for 1600 bucks. Yeah. Easy, easy. And to have a rifle of, of this caliber built in a year, if you're going to take that on a hunt out west, that's nothing. Yep, that's nothing. Because you're, you're planning on coming out uh, uh, and doing an out-of-state hunt out west. Uh, you might be waiting for a few years to be able to draw on that. So right. you, you just get started now, figure out what you want, um, and and just save for it. Like you say, mm-hmm. I mean, there's ways people can cut. I know I can cut, but I mean, I build all my own shit, so... So what do you got for us, Ty? Well, I like that. Uh, budgeting. We always call those sinking funds. That's where you just, you're like, this is the thing I want. And so you just put in whatever you can afford in your budget. You throw it in there until you get that money saved up. And then you go buy that thing and you just slowly build up to it. If you're after a $1,400 and you want to just go down and buy off over the counter, you can do the same thing. You just throw that, just put cash in there. Figure out what your budget can afford. Throw it in that sinking fund. Once you get the money, bam, you go buy it. I mean, uh, you can do really anything on a budget. It's just uh, you've got to be disciplined to that budget. Uh, I think you talk about that and buying a gun over the counter. Uh, I've got a few guns. um, And. I don't make a lot of money, and I have never made a lot of money, but Layaway was my best friend. That is how I purchased the majority of the guns that I have. Going in, putting down 10 20%, sticking that gun in the back so that no one else can buy it except for me, and I come in on a monthly basis and make a payment, and then one day I walk in to make a payment, and I've got... 80 bucks and they tell me well you only owe 60 and then i walk home with a brand new gun yeah it kind of sneaks up on you it is nice layaway layaway is nice if uh, that's another option especially if you see something that uh just really strikes your fancy at that time and you want to throw i mean oh we got gun stores here that you put no money down and they'll put you on layaway and you just show up every month uh, it's like you know interest-free financing for whatever for 10 months believe me i would not own a suppressor if it wasn't for layaway (laughs) and that's a that's in in reality if you have a place that will let you do layaway on a suppressor that's the way to do it because you can't have it for over a year anyway what's the point in putting all the money down to start with yeah uh, hey i totally agree um i'd say so uh my under pressures outdoor under pressure outdoors podcast tip of the week is research especially at this phase of the game is your best friend because what we're talking about here is piecing together the rifle you want and the only way to do that is to figure out the rifle you want ahead of time so figure out 
what your caliber you're going to shoot, what action you want. And now your action might depend on what stock. You might start with, I love this stock. I'm going to build a gun on this stock slash chassis. Well, they've only make it for a 700, so that limits you. Or I want to build on a how a 1500 well that's going to limit your stock choices or your chassis choices so do the research because there's nothing is going to be worse than you spending six seven hundred dollars to get started only to find out that it's not what you wanted and have to either start over or spend another five hundred dollars to get it to where you want it to be research is free all it takes is some time do that research so that when you start actually spending money, it goes in the direction you want it to go. So that would be my tip. Do the research, figure it out. And that even applies to reloading. You do the same thing. So do the research and make a plan, figure out where you want to go before you even spend a dime. So to caveat off of that real quick, and this is something we'll touch much further into in part three of this episode. Um, I, I would really say the, the first choice in a, if I'm going to build a rifle off of an action, not a barreled action, just an action would be to pick the stock style that I want in the manufacturer. And you shouldn't let that scare you, uh, because you think I don't have the ability or the tooling to barrel a Remington 700 action. Um, because there are substitutes out there which are they're referred to as a rimage barrel uh, that would use a Remington 700 action with a savage style barrel nut, which would allow you to eliminate having to have a lathe with that headspace. And the majority of those companies that offer stocks only to the Remington 700 action also offer that stock to a Remington 700 action with a rimage barrel. So keep that stuff in mind, pick that stock you want and, and, and go from there. Yeah, that, that, that is a good place. If, yeah, that'll be next week. But if you're going to start from piece by piece and, uh, you know, build the cat's ass of rifles for what you want it to do, the, the stock is, is the best place to start because uh, there's only so many action manufacturers that are going to be worth a shit and you want to make sure that um that that stock you're interested in is going is going to fit one of those actions so if you pick an obscure one like i did the howa that limited me on my stocks a lot it's not really obscure but not a lot of aftermarket support on that one um yeah, so the 700, you pretty much find anything you want for it. And the one and the 110s, you can find stuff for that all over the place, too. But um, if you decide you want to do, build a, a Howa action or a Howa rifle, 
just realize that you're going to be really limited on stock options for that. So um, if you're if you're dead set on that, pick your stock first and then buy whatever action fits that stock. And let's be honest. I mean, what good is a rifle that if it doesn't look cool? Well, it has to have some sex appeal to it. Oh, it does have to have some sex appeal. There's a lot of rifles out there that didn't, and they're not out there anymore. That's right. The, the ones that are still around are here, not only because they're accurate and they're functional, but because they're sexy. Yeah, they're sexy. You do you do need that. And so, but I mean, you could you could build the ugliest son of a bitch out there, and, the, and it could shoot like some bitch, but... Um, you know, with a face only a mother could love. You might love that baby, but when you hand it down to your son, he's going to sell that shit faster than you can blink. I mean, it's like riding a moped. It might get good gas mileage, but it's still not cool. It's still not cool. That's right. So, yeah, you just consider that. And, you know, if you if you Google uh, long-range rifles and hit the image button, ah, you can go through it and just look at some gun porn and and uh you know just find out what you want it to look like and you can start there and that kind of gives you a pretty good idea of a direction you want to go but you also need to think about your weight and all that stuff too really consider the purpose of the rifle and build it around that um there's some sexy ass chassis out there but they're 25 pounds and if you're going sheep hunting you ain't lugging around a 37 pound rifle Unless you're Dwayne Johnson, I guess. I don't know. He probably wouldn't want to do it either. <laughs> well, so we've come to the end of a... This is easily... This will be the longest episode we have yet. So if you've listened this far, you've obviously gained some great information and you've enjoyed something about it. So get on iTunes and give us a, a Apple podcast and give us a five-star review. Uh, shoot us your questions. Let us know what you think. So, Tyke? Everybody take care. I guess we'll see you next week. Yeah, I got to give you your last words since I cut you off last week. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we'll see you next week. All right, see you.